The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fans of Joseph Conrad will perhaps understand what I mean when I say that tonight's entry in the great myths is the heart of darkness of Celtic myth. And by that, I don't mean that what I'm about to read from uh, is a depressing or dour or uh, indeed immensely depressing story. What I mean and what I've long felt is that heart of darkness is the longest hundred or so pages in English literature. It uh, takes so long to read it, uh, as amazing as it is. Uh, It is like wading through a prose that is sort of like syrup. And what I want to read from tonight in the English translation is called The Tales of the Elders of Ireland. And in the original, it's the Agalev Shanorak. It is commonly uh, translated as the Colloquy of the Elders, and it is in translation. It was just published. Let's see what date this is from. It was published in 1999 in a new translation by Anne Dooley and Harry Rowe by uh, Oxford World's Classics, and it is just over 200 pages. And within those 200 pages, by my count, and by someone else's count, it could be more or less, there are about 146 or so uh, separate stories. And they are all strung together in the most marvelous way. But they're also strung together in a way that makes the entire book, if you sit down and read it from cover to cover, just immensely dense. You feel as if you are wading again through uh, syrup or just through uh, in a in a spiritual or a uh, literary sense uh, something something powerful something that has uh, immense depth to it. You think of the stories of Kuhalan and the Tain Bolkunya. You think of many of the other stories that have the flavor of action or of war. And even though there are fights in the uh, tales of the elders of Ireland, uh, even though there is what you might call action, it doesn't strike me as being the kind of story that someone uh, would sit down and tell for entertainment, even in the Middle Ages. And the description given by uh, on the back of the book is probably the best one 
uh, around, so I will just read it. Uh, Tales of the Elders of Ireland is the first complete translations of the late Middle Irish. Uh, let me get it right again. Agalev Shanarach. Dating from around the end of the 12th century, it is the largest literary text surviving from early Ireland, and it contains the earliest and most comprehensive collection of Athenian stories and poetry. There is constant interaction throughout between the contemporary Christian world of St. Patrick with his scribes, clerics, occasional angels, and souls rescued from hell, and the earlier pagan world of the ancient giant Fenians, with an array of Irish kings, some historical, some mythical, and the parallel, timeless other world, peopled by ever-young, shape-shifting fairies. It also provides the most extensive account available of the highly cultured inhabitants of the Irish Otherworld, or the Sheath, as it's called, their music and their magic, their internecine warfare, and their malice towards and infatuation with humankind, themes still featured in the storytelling of present-day Ireland. So what we have is uh, the, the remains of uh, the remains of the followers of Finn Machiavell. And by the time that these stories begin, Finn Machiavell has been dead for centuries. But there are a handful of the men who once followed him. And you'll remember that from uh, my reading of the, uh, the Pursuit of Diarmuid and Grania, the idea of a strong man like Finn Machiavell, and he would gather around him almost... Uh, a local militia of young men, and they would fight together. And at the time that these tales are beginning, uh, Finn Machiavell has been dead for some time, but a few of his followers are still around, and they encounter St. Patrick. And basically the entire book is uh, these survivals, these survivors of this earlier pagan time, coming into contact with Patrick and Christians of this later time. And uh, the new people, the, the new arrivals are saying, um, what is that hill over there? What is that mountain over there? We've heard that this place has been given this name. We've heard that that place over there, that, uh, that lake, that river, or this mound uh, has been given this name. Why was it given this name? And the entire book is basically a genealogy of names, of deep history, and of memory of this older time that the coming of Christianity sort of did away with, but they still felt the need to, uh, within the frame story of the book, they still felt the need to um, preserve. And one way in which they do it is through a wonderful word. Let me just read from the introduction, and then we'll just get straight to the stories. Um, it is a word uh, that is pronounced dinhenkes, dinhenkes. And where is that part of the introduction? Here it is. The basic framework holding the hundreds of stories together 
is provided by two major literary structures, themselves of primary importance to medieval Irish literature in general. One is the extremely important genre of the Dinhenkes collection, the lore of place names, and the sum of underlying stories relating to an area and its name. This is one of the most deeply embedded and persistent strands in all of Irish literature, and it provides the main structuring device and raison d'etre of the tales. In the, in the greatest of the early Irish sagas, the Tainvokulnia, or Cattle Raid of Cooley, for example, many scenes are constructed on just such an etiological model. In the period in which the cycle, cycles of Fenian tales were taking shape as a viable cultural project, there was already in literary circulation a considerable mass of narratives, some of it authentic tradition and some of it the invention of Irish ecclesiastical men of learning, which provided an appropriate legend to account for local place names. And it's incredible what they do with this material. And I think it's best to just start reading some of the stories and commenting as I go. And think again, this is the 12th century in Ireland. Um, and think of the other stories that I've read here. I am not aware of, of anything uh, that I've read so far, or really anything even in the, I guess, the contemporary Norse sagas that has as much pathos and emotion behind it as the opening pages of the tales of the elders of Ireland, the Agelev Shanorak. So with that frame story in mind, the passing of an older civilization and the consuming of it by a new one, just listen to the first page here. After the battles of Comar, Gaber, and Olarba, the, the Fian was destroyed. The survivors scattered in small bands across Ireland, and by the time our story begins, only two of the nobles of this ancient Fian were still alive. Oshin, son of Finn Machabel, the son of Cuval, and Caelta, the son of Crunchu, son of Ronan. By this time, their earlier fighting abilities were much reduced. Sixteen of the Fion warriors traveled with them across the wooded and flower-covered slopes of the Fuse. By evening, they had reached the bright herb gardens, now called Loth, and sat down there, at the setting of the sun, in great sorrow and despair. Kalta then said to Oshin, Well, good Oshin, where shall we go? before day's end, to find some hospitality for the night. That I do not know, said Oshin, since, of the elders of the Fian, the old companions of Finn Mechovel, only the three of us remain, you, Kelta, and I, the lady and guardian Kama, who watched over Finn from his boyhood until the very day of his death. We can certainly expect hospitality from her tonight, said Kaelta, for no one could count or describe the gifts and treasures that Finn, the lord of the Fion, gave to her. He even gave her the drinking horn, Angalach, one of the three best treasures that ever came to him, given to him by Moriath, 
the daughter of the king of the sea of the Greeks. And already you see the, the old history coming in, the, the names of battles and the names of, in this case, of gifts, of trinkets, of just items that have huge histories behind them. And indeed, Kama gave them lodging for the night and asked them who they might be. When they, when they told her their names, she shed long and bitter tears. Each asked the other about the many years that had passed since their last meeting. Afterwards, the Fian went to the guest hall she had provided. The Lady Kama, the old guardian of Fimakuvel, had the freshest of foods brought to them, with the oldest of wines. She knew well how such men had been fed in those old days, and also the great quantity of food that Oshin and Kalta required. Weak and infirm though she was, she spoke with them of the Fion and of Finn Mechovel, likewise of Oscar, son of Oshin, of Machlugach, the Battle of Gaber, and other matters. These reminiscences caused a great silence to fall on them. Kalta then said, just as painful for us as these memories, just as painful for us as these memories, is the fact that the eighteen of us, the only survivors of the great and noble fellowship, must now part from one another. Oshin replied, I swear there will be little fight or strength left in me when the others have gone. And though they were met and though they were manly warriors, they, together with Lady Kama, wept deeply and disconsolately. They received their fill of food and drink there, and stayed on for three days and nights. As they took leave of Kama, Oshin recited the following lines, and interspersed with all the stories are these little poems that people recite. As they took leave of Kama, Oshin recited the following lines. Kama is weary today. She is at the end of her journey. Childless, airless, old age is upon her. They went outside onto the grassy lawn to take counsel and decided that they must now part, one from the other, and their parting was as the parting of a soul from its body. Oshin went to the sheath of Brest of Kleitech, where his mother Bly, daughter of Derg, Dion Skothach, the quick of speech, lived. Kailta went to the estuary of Bek the Exile, now the site of the monastery of Drogheda. It had been named after Bek the Exile, who died there. He was the son of Iris, king of the Romans. He had come to conquer Ireland, but a great wave drowned him at that place. From the estuary, Kalta went out to the pool of Fjak, and on the bright flowing Boyne, then southwards across the old plain of Brega, to the fortress of the Red Ridge, where Patrick, son of Calpurn, then happened to be. Now that is immensely moving to me. They went outside onto the grassy lawn to take counsel and decided that they must now part one from another, and their parting was as the parting of the soul from its body. Now, I, I am not aware of anything like that in Homer, in uh, Virgil or Ovid, 
in any of the any of these traditions uh, I guess before quote unquote the modern age whatever you would want to call it um, I'm not aware of anything quite like that um, perhaps in the Greek tragedies but that is after a certain sensibility the sensibility that produced Homer has passed I'm also not really and I think I've mentioned this before I'm not aware of another place that a religion or a civilization conquered an older civilization or an older religion. I'm certainly not aware of any other place that Christianity went and took over where the old stories are treated with such pathos and affection and nostalgia even. There are many stories, it seems, in the Celtic tradition. And again, I'm sure someone with a degree could count them all up. Um, there are many stories where uh, where monks or priests come upon someone who is from those old times and can tell them the stories. I can think of in the, the tradition that I belong to, to Judaism, um, there is absolutely nothing in the Hebrew Bible about uh, when you read the stories of, of the Israelites leaving Egypt and eventually going to the Promised Land, um, they are told to uh, annihilate and uh, get rid of the inhabitants who are in the Promised Land. They are told to kill them. They are told to not learn what they do and to not copy what they do. Um, and whether or not that actually, whether or not that invasion actually took place, and uh, whether the motives, the literary or um, uh, theological motives behind a story like that is just uh, um, a reflection of a certain time and place is something for another podcast, another episode. But it just strikes me, as I'm about to read, when Kyle encounters St. Patrick and hears this first story, it just strikes me um, how, uh, again, how moving it is, I suppose, that, that uh, there is some kind of meeting of minds going on here, even though it is very clear which culture is the conquering one and which culture is the conquered, which is the new one and which is the one that is fading away. There is affection and mutual respect going on here. And even if you consider that to just be the politics of the time as well, um, that is just the kind of story that monks would write after paganism disappeared from Ireland, um, even though it, it perhaps never completely disappeared. Even then, the humanity breaks through. And here is the first story. Uh, Patrick was chanting the service of the Lord and praising the Creator. He also placed a blessing on the fortress of the Red Ridge, where Finn Machovell had lived. His priests, seeing Calta and his men approaching, were seized with fear and horror at the sight of these enormous men, the warriors of an early age, together with their great dogs. The earlier inhabitants of the land are always imagined as being giants, or at least a, a lot taller than uh, the Christians of the time. 
Then Patrick, the son of Calpurn, the salmon of heaven, the pillar of dignity and the angel on earth, he who was apostle to the Irish, arose and sprinkled holy water on these great men. For until that day a thousand legions of demons had been above their heads. The demons fled from them in all directions, into the hills and rock clefts, and off to the far reaches of the country. The great men then sat down. Well, my friends, said Patrick de Calta, what name do you bear? He answered him, I am Calta, son of Crunhu, son of Ronan of the retinue of Finmachuval. The priests kept staring in astonishment at these warriors, for the tallest of the clerics came only to the waist or the shoulder tops of these great men, who were already sitting down. There is something I would ask of you, Calta, said Patrick. Calta replied, If my strength and power suffice, it will be granted. Tell me what you wish. And Patrick answered, Could you find us a well of pure water close by, so that we might baptize the peoples of Brega, Meath, and Uznach? I shall indeed find one for you, noble and righteous one, said Calta. And he took Patrick by the hand, and together they went over the ramparts of the fortress. Just nine steps from the portal they saw a lovely crystal-clear spring, and were amazed at the thick growths of watercress and brooklime surrounding it. Calter recited these lines on the appearance and qualities of the spring. O spring of Tragdaban, lovely your bright crest sprigs. Since your pruning was neglected, your brooklime has multiplied. Trout off your banks, wild swine in your wood recesses, deer on the rocks for hunting, and dappled red-breasted fawns. Mast on your trees' branches, fish in your river estuary, lovely your stalks of arum, O green-wooded stream. From you the fion set out, when generous Hoiknen was slain, when Finn's fion was slaughtered, in the morning above Maclen. From you went Fothad of the feasting, a warrior who suffered sorrow. He found a grave in the east, when slain at the battle of Clarach. Bly came to the head of the spring, the daughter of Derg the eloquent, with wailing cry and lament, after the battle of Confate. After the slaughter of dogs and men, after the wounding of shining warriors, Garad's cry was heard, at night beside the spring. Now you get that that history, and it's it's fine to be confused about all of that. There's no way of untangling it, or of separating it all out, or of making sense of it the way that any of us might be able to write about the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, the point isn't the clarity of or trying to make modern sense of it but just of seeing how many stories are behind just this one anecdote about a spring. And, well, said Patrick, have our food and provisions arrived yet? They have indeed, said Bishop Secknall. Then serve our dinner, said Patrick, and give their share to those nine great warriors there, the last survivors of the Fion. His, bishop, his bishops, priests, and psalmodists came, and bless the food so that all might have their fill of food and drink for the comfort of their souls. Then Patrick asked, 
Was Finn Mercoval, your former lord, a good man? Calte, in reply, gave this short eulogy. Were the dark leaves gold that the trees discard, and the white wave silver, Finn would give away all. What has kept your warriors alive for all these years? asked Patrick. And Calta replied, The truth of our hearts, the strength of our arms, and the constancy of our tongues. And again, if there was any animosity um, to these Catholics uh, in preserving the tales of these pagans, I don't think you would put those words in the mouth of a pagan. The truth of our hearts, the strength of our arms, and the constancy of our tongues. Tell me, dear Calta, said Patrick, were the drinking horns or goblets or cups of crystal and shining gold in the houses in which you stayed in all those old days? And Calta answered, Twelve horns and three hundred, the golden horns of Finn, oceans of ale they held at the feasting of his men. If our religious life were not being disrupted, said Patrick, and our prayers neglected, and our communion with the King of Heaven and Earth disturbed, we would enjoy conversing with you, good warrior. Kailta then recited another verse, naming various chieftains and lords with whom they had been, and their drinking horns. And that is exactly what happens for the next page. A wonderful catalog of old warriors and the names of their drinking horns. Um, this is what you have, the the frame story of Patrick or someone asking a question. Uh, what is the story behind this object, this place, this person, this name? You have the story attached to it uh, being recited. Then you have a sort of a cap of a poem that ends the story. And then you also have just the place name of where it is they wander so that the editors of this book uh, can even sort of uh, have a map of Ireland uh, after the introduction to show where it might be that all of this takes place. It's a magnificent way of doing things and of preserving uh, an immense uh, cultural heritage. And then a few pages later, what comes is a, a wonderful little bit uh, capping a story. And this is sort of another genre of literature, you might suppose. And this is just uh, what I would call uh, general wisdom or general advice. And listen to these uh, passages, which are set off as poetry of just advice given from uh, the counsel that Finn gave to someone else and it's recited in the form of a poem. And this can give a good indication of what the culture believed the ancients, uh, the ancient Irish, uh, believed to be important, or it could reflect what the authors, the medieval authors, believed was important in their own time. O Maclugach, impetuous one, if you wish to be in vassalage, be peaceable in a great man's household, be hardy in the wilderness, do not beat your hound without cause, nor libel your wife without proof. Avoid the fool in battle, though he be frenzied, Maglugach. And I assume frenzied means uh, the apparent frenzy of, that might look like 
courage, the insanity of, uh, uh, you might say, uh, that Odin or his like may have had in battle. Do not mock the holy man, nor be involved in quarrels. Keep well away from these two, the witch and the evil man. Two-thirds of your courtesy to women and the household servants. Be kind to poets, makers of art, and to the common soldiery. Do not take the best seat away from friends and advisors. Avoid false and crooked oaths, and do not welcome everybody. Do not boast over much, nor offer what you cannot rightly give, for grand words are shameful if nothing result. Do not forsake your overlord for as long as you live, for gold, silver, or wealth. Do not betray your guarantor. Avoid blustering complaint to a lord about his household. A good man has no business libeling retainers to their lord. Keep from constant gossip and lies, and from impetuous speech. Though you be generous, deride none in public. Do not frequent alehouses, nor be unkind to an old man. Listen to words of good counsel. Have no truck with the rabble. Be a listener in the forest, a watcher on the plain. For you do not know this matters. If your enemy lies in wait for you, do not be mean with provisions or be a miser's friend. Do not impose yourself on a lord. Do not speak ill of great men. Have your armor and weapons ready for the outbreak of sudden battle. Do not be mean with your wealth. Be constant in your courtliness. Mach Lugach. That's a wonderful set of... Uh, of medieval advice. And following that uh, is a wonderful line here. May you have victory and blessings, said Patrick, for this is a fine tale that you have told us. Where is Brocan, our scribe? Here, holy cleric, said Brocan. Get your book, Patrick says, your inkhorn and pen, and copy out this story. And Brocan did so at once. And some version of that, of go and write this down, recurs throughout the um, the Agel of Shenorach. And I wanted to read a few of the other variations of it. Um, let's see. A little later on it says, One cannot count the number of stories that Kalta and Oshin related of the great deeds of valor and prowess they had done or their tales of the nobles of the Fian, as well as the local lore of each hill and region that the men of Ireland inquired about. And a few pages further on. Um, someone says, Where are the wise men and the historians of Ireland? Whatever Calta and Oshin have told us of their great deeds of valor and prowess, as well as all the knowledge, learning, and the place-name lore of Ireland, let it all be preserved on the staffs of poets, in the texts of scholars, and in the tales of sages, so that each might carry his share with him to his own native land. And thus it was done. So it's not even um, it's not even just Patrick who is who is saying this. It is the old warriors themselves. They want their stories to be preserved. 
a few pages further on. Let's see what it says. Um, he would be welcome, the king said, if he came to me, for he would leave us with the lore of each territory and of each hill and the distinction of each family. This is just a remark from one of the stories uh, that I have numbered, number 45 of perhaps 140. There is just someone who says, of course this guest is welcome, because the value this guest can give us is the lore of each territory and of each hill, and the distinction of each family. And that, you might say, is one of the reasons that uh, poetry uh, does not have the same influence and power that it once did. Because nowadays, if someone wants the lore of each territory and of each hill, whatever the modern equivalent of that would be, uh, they would find it in a proper book of nonfiction with the sources cited, or they would make a movie out of it. Um, that is how you would uh, either get the proper scholarly story or the popular version. You wouldn't get it through poets. And that just seems like a wonderful remark to make. The guest should be allowed to come because he would leave us with all of these stories that he knows. A little later on, it says this. Let's see here. Um, that after Calta reached a certain place, St. Patrick came to the race course of the chariots with 150 bishops and 150 priests and 150 deacons and 150 psalmodists. And I suppose I noted that down because if you remember in some of the uh, martial, some of the war tales, it, or even in some of the childhood ones, uh, everyone is numbered in two sets of 50. There were three 50s of boys, there were three 50s of men doing this and that. And by the time you get to Patrick, uh, there are three 50s of bishops, there are two 50s of priests, there are two 50s of deacons, and three 50s of psalmodists. They keep the, uh, the way of counting going, but now it is uh, monastic. And near the end of the book, what does it say? Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, it just says, <clears throat> so that the scholars and the sages may preserve the tales that we tell them until the end of time. And uh, the person who is going to be telling the tales is offered a drink, sort of as, um, as an encouragement to do so. And the last version of this that I have is, um, someone asks, where do you come from? And the response is, they told him their names, their lineages, and their adventures. And that might be sort of your resume the, uh, uh, the uh, what is the word, the reputation which precedes you. What is your name, what is your lineage, and what are the adventures that you have been on? And that's sort of a sideline uh, in the middle of the tales, surrounding the tales, are remarks like these. And what do we have here? Here is another smaller tale, and this is what it says. Meanwhile, Kalta went north to the broad plain of the track of the Dagda, 
across the pointed mountain of the Fion, or Curlieu Mountains, now called the Cataract of the Sons of Eric, or Asylin, and north to the Gap of Segais, the descendants of Abric, to the Gap of the Hundred, now called Keshkoran, out onto the level plain of Koran. Here it was that he and his men heard a great noise and tumult approaching them, and Kalta looked and saw nine fierce, wild stags. They threw nine casts at them and killed them all, so that they, so that they had food for the evening. They put on them their shoulders and brought them to the cataract of the son of Modarn, now called the cataract of the oak, or Bali Sadar, and went into the territory of the contention, now called the territory of Kerb, and to the promontory of Eba, daughter of Gavtin, son of Morna, or Mokro, the place where the tidal wave drowned her. Then they went to the Red Ridge, now called the Ridge of Baskets, or Drum Cliff, and to the Ford of the Encounter, now called the Ford of the Grey Stag. From there they went to the Tomb of the Sow on the peak of Gulbin, or Ben Bulbin, the place where the boar killed Dierma de Dugna, and to the top of the green-surfaced hill that contained the bed of Dermot. There Calta put his weapons on the ground, and lay down on the grave of his foster brother and beloved comrade, Dermot Oduvna. He wept flowing tears of true sorrow, until both his shirt and his chest were wet, and he said, Sad it is that my comrade and foster brother has gone from me, they were there from the middle of the day until the close to sunset. Sad it is, friends, he said, that I would never wish to leave this grave in my grief for Diarmut and his children. And I read that for a few reasons. The first is that it shows you again the diversion simply to give names uh, and the history of the places where they're going. And the second is that the... Uh, the story of Diarmut and Grania, which I read, I think, two months ago here, is just briefly mentioned in a page, and it's mentioned um, so casually that the assumption would be that anyone coming across the version of the story here would know exactly what the compiler of the Agelev Shenorak uh, was uh, talking about. And now find another one. And here's a slightly longer tale here. Kylta went off with his men and stopped at the Mount of the Hosts and the Mount of Kerv, or Sleeve Carberry, at the Mount of Meeting in the north, and then went to the castle of the Red Stag. They had not been there long when they saw a splendid couple of fine appearance before them on the cairn a handsome young man, together with a lady of the same age. And all of these adventures seem to start uh, when a person or a couple just suddenly appear before the protagonist. They're just suddenly there, and you know you're into another story. The young man asked news of Kalta, and Kalta told him his tale. I am one of the household of Finn Makobal. My name is Kalta, the son of Ronan. What is your name, young man? asked Kalta. Aogain Flaithbrig, the hospitaller of the chieftains, is my name, he said. And I am of the old, ho old household 
of Carver Life Chairs and Cormac. Becknate Banbrug, the Lady Hospitaller, is the name of this lady, and we are of equal age. We are both two hundred years old and have been thirty years together. Did you not have enormous wealth, young man? asked Calta. I did have, he said, for there was not a place from the cataract of Ruad, son of Modarn or Asaro, to the hill of Fomorian in the north, now called the Torach of the north of Ireland, or Tory Island, where I did not have a milch herd at every second or every third district. What was it that destroyed or carried off that wealth? asked Kyalta. A monster of theft destroyed us, he says, a horrible giant and a son of ill fortune, and he plundered the seven entire cantreds that I had, so that there is no one left to inherit patrimony or land, and he laid it all waste after its destruction. He has robbed and despoiled me until but eight score milch herds are the last of my wealth. And where is this man? asked Kyalta. There is a great rock, he said, to the north of us on a very wide bay, and there he lives, and his family of three carry off a full ship's cargo with them, for he himself is the equal of four hundred men, his hound of three hundred, and his daughter of another three hundred. No one can do anything against them. But where does he enter this bay? asked Calta. By the town on the northwest side, said Aogan. They went to the fort with Aogan and spent the night there. They were in all respects well attended to and entertained. But on the next morning... Calta rose alone and took his shield, his sword, and two spears. He went to the impregnable rock at the side of the bay and waited there for a while. He then saw a boat approaching with the three in it, the father and his daughter and his bitch, a coarse-haired, grayish-brown bitch with a rough iron chain around her neck, quite the family here, the daughter, a lump of a woman, bald and dark, like a rocky crag from a distance stood in the front of the boat with a stout iron spear in her hand, and the giant stood in the stern. They came into the bay and landed close to Kyalta. The sight of them brought him great fear and loathing. The huge man said to his daughter, Let loose the bitch, and send her at that big man over there, so that she may eat her fill of him before we go off raiding. The daughter let the bitch loose, and a fear and a terror, such as he had never experienced in battle or duel, seized Kyalta. He said, May my creator and holy Patrick protect me against you three. And he cast his bronze javelin at the bitch. One prong of the javelin stuck in her palate, and the other in the lower jaw blocking her mouth. She fell from the boat and died at the bottom of the sea. Later she washed ashore. The other two came on land to attack Kyalta and fought against him boldly and resolutely. The daughter gave him thirty wounds from the tip of his great toe to the hair of his head, and Kyalta gave her a blow of his sword that caused her entrails and bowels to fall from her. Melan the giant, the son of Mognach, Mongach hardened his battle and would have defeated Calta in that battle, but Calta fought even more boldly and eagerly 
against the huge man and cut him into three horribly mutilated pieces, the third of which was his head. He cut off the heads of all three and brought them with him back to the house of Eogan. Eogan and Kalta's companions came forward, recognized the heads, and thanked Kalta for the deed. Feeble and exhausted, Kalta sat down, and then he recited the following lines. And here's this poem. I find myself in Eogan's land with sorely wounded heart. I left Malin and his dog, fearful monsters in the shore. I killed Malin and his dog and his daughter of ill repute. From morning until break of day, the fierce battle carried on. Wherever I wandered north or south, in the world with a mighty host, I have not found at any time such pain as this night. And it says, he was afflicted with weakness and fainting, and healing herbs were brought to him. He spent six weeks there recovering until he was made completely well. And that is about as good an example as I have in this book as I found. That's two pages of a story that would, uh, that you can get a great, uh, a great sense of the color and the flair of some of these stories that uh, might be hard to find in some of the other ones, but they're, they're wonderful two-page, almost set pieces. You think of set pieces in an action movie these days where that, that are like this all throughout the book, and that, that is one of my favorites of them. Let's see what the next one is here. Here is another short one. Kylta and the king of Ulster were at the wave of flood, looking off into the distance over the sea, when, again, here it is, you just see someone, when they saw a young woman in the waves swimming on her back, and then on her side, and then paddling around. She sat before them on the top of the wave as if she were sitting on a hill or a rock. She raised her head to them and said, is that not Kalta there, the son of Ronan? It surely is, said Kalta. May the day we saw you sitting on that rock, next to the one who was the best man in Ireland and Scotland, Finn Macubel. Who are you then? asked Kalta. I am Levan, the White, daughter of the King of Ireland, Eochaid, son of Eogan, son of Eilil. I drowned in this wave three hundred years ago, and have been riding it to this time. The waves of Ireland and Scotland battle against me, but are unable to harm me. This, then, said the King of Ulster, is the reason for the resounding music of the sheath that comes from the wave. It is indeed, she said, for from the day that the Lord Finn died, I have not put my head above this wave until today, but everyone has heard the resounding music of the sheath that I made. That caused the warriors and the strong men of the land to nod and sleep. It is the sight of Kalta, the best son of a warrior that a woman of Ireland ever bore, that caused me to raise my head today. Kalta then recited the following poem. Whence comes the wave of flood from the fair-haired sea? 
From what land, fortune with prosperity, what brings sleep of the song? Is the wave of Rudegreg the red that comes from the south or the north, or the wave that subsides here that screams at Troaheli? Is it the cold wave of the hill of Hoth, or the harsh wave of the estuary of Kulba, or the sweet wave of the shore of Bile that is guarding Ireland? Is it the wave of Clydna with victory that strikes the solid land, or the wave of Dublin, or that of the Shoals, or the son of Dierne? Whatever be this wave, more beautiful than other, beautiful its color, full and pure, sweet its garbled sound in the steep inlet, but cold the song that it sings. And that again is just a piece, just a page, where you just come upon a woman who drowned and who is surviving in the sheath, in the, the magical other world that is, in this case, beneath the water. And as it mentions in the back of the book, uh, this, uh, the Tales of the Elders of Ireland gives some of the longest and most detailed descriptions of the sheath of that strange place, the most extensive account available of the highly cultured inhabitants of the Irish otherworld, their music and magic. And I just wanted to read two more stories here, and one of them will be about the sheath. Before I do that, because it, it is sort of a strange and not very well-defined place, I wanted to read the, the, the definition of sheath given in James McKillop's Dictionary of Celtic Mythology, and it says, uh, Sheath, the Irish, Scottish, Gaelic, and Manx words for the fairy mound, and by implication, the realms beyond the senses, the other world, or an oral tradition of the fairy world. The fairy mound slash sheath is a familiar landscape feature in Goidelic culture, a round, flat-top, man-made barrow, tumulus, or hillock, of ancient origin, apparently intended to bury or commemorate a mortal king or a ruler. From long-standing oral tradition, the fairy mounds, or the sheath, were thought to mark places where the semi-divine Tuatha Du Danann fled underground after their defeat by the mortal Milesians. And it goes on from there, so that what we're given to understand about the sheath is that there were earlier inhabitants of Ireland, and when a wave of newcomers came, the old inhabitants went underground in these barrows, in these burial places, and sort of set up shop there. There's that line in Lord of the Rings, I'm not sure if it's in the books or not, when, uh, when they go underground uh, to, the, to, the, um, to, the, to the mines, and Gimli says, and they call this place a mine, it's actually a palace to him and to anyone who would actually go there. And what we're about to read will give you a sense of what uh, literature and uh, the oral tradition believed were under the ground. And it says, um, in oral tradition, the story of the Tuatha de Danann's defeat 
and the migration underground became a means of accommodating international fairy lore. The old divinities became the Aeshid, the people of the fairy mound, invisible to most mortals at most times, at Samhain and at Midsummer's Eve being the chief exceptions. Humans favored with second sight could perceive them, and on occasion persons from this hidden world might intrude into the realm of mortals, such as the woman of the Sheed or the Banshee, who calls out into the night to foretell, foretell death, and so on. And this is a thought that I never really had before. Um, already in the Irish tradition, um, even, yes, I believe, even before Christianity came to Ireland, um, there seems to have been this idea that uh, new people are coming to Ireland all the time. And th it's not that they, I mean, they do replace the current inhabitants, but the current inhabitants always have a place to go, even if that place is underground. And the old inhabitants are not forgotten, and there is not a sense of... Um, of uh, defeating them in a humiliating way, but instead there is a sense of needing to remember them. So that by the time you get to when these stories were written, uh, I don't know. I don't know if this is true or not, but the, it, it seems to make sense that it would explain why even uh, Christian Irish would treat their pagan forebears the way they do in these stories with such respect. And I'll read part of this story, which is about people going into the mounds and what they see there. Then we'll close with a much smaller story. And this is what the longer one about the sheath says. Then all the hosts together went with Patrick across the Black Wood, now called Darkwood, to the Mount of the Women, or Slieve Namon, which is called the Mount of Age, son of Eugain. They went up onto the summit of the mountain and sat there for a considerable time. The King of Leinster asked Calta, What is this mountain that we are on? And Calta says, It is the mountain of a sheath, and it contains a sheath palace, though it has never been discovered by anyone except once by Finn with six of his warriors. A fine fawn was flushed out by us, said Calta, at Torach Ev, the north of Ireland, and Tory Island, which was mentioned before. We six warriors followed it from Torach as far as this mountain, the Mount of Aish, son of Eugain. The fawn went to earth here, and we did not know what direction it went in after that. A great and heavy snow fell then, and the tops of the trees were twisted as withes, and the terrible storm and bad weather that followed greatly restricted our movements. And Finn said to me, Calta, can you find us shelter for the night from this storm? I hurried past the shoulder of the mountain to the south, and I saw, and I saw a great bright sheath with an abundance of horns and chalices and goblets of crystal and white gold within. And this is a wonderful recurring thing. Um, sometimes the stories start with 
uh, Kyalta or whoever it is standing around and a man or a woman or a couple appear to them, they approach them. Other times, the impetus for a story is simply the hunt. Uh, wonderful stories of the hunt. Uh, there are the negative ones where uh, a king is killed on the hunt as sort of a uh, um, sort of a, a hunting ritual, you might say, a buried hunting ritual back there. I think of the uh, Nibelungen lead, where the the king in that story is is led out under false pretenses to a hunt and is killed there, where hunting is a replacement for war and battle or of political intrigue. But in this case, and in many of the Irish cases, the hunt is uh, the place where things happen. It is the place where risk is allowed to bring forward whatever it might. And uh, so they come upon a sheath simply by uh, simply by chasing a fawn. And here we are. I hurried past the shoulder of the mountain to the south, and I saw a great bright sheath with an abundance of horns and chalices and goblets of crystal and white gold within. I stayed at the entrance of the sheath for a long time, observing and considered what I should do to enter the sheath to acquire knowledge of it or to return where I had last seen Finn when I left to seek shelter. I finally decided to go into the sheath, said Kalta, and I sat myself down on a crystal chair in the center of the sheath. I looked about the room and saw twenty-eight warriors on one side of the house and a fair-headed, lovely woman beside each man and six gentle, young, yellow-haired girls on the other side of the house, with shag mantles on their shoulders. A gentle, yellow-haired woman was sitting in a chair in the center of the house, with a harp in her hand, and she played many songs. The sweet sound of the girl's voice and her Gaelic were as sweet as the melodies of pipes. Each time a song was sung, a horn was given to her, and she took a drink from it and returned it into the hand of the man who had given it to her. And they found both pleasure and enjoyment in her, said Kalta. Allow someone to attend to you, dear Kalta, said the woman. I shall not allow it at all, said I, for there is one close by that is nobler than I, Finn Macoval, and he desires to receive a knight's hospitality in this sheath. One of the men in the front of the house said, Return, my dear Kalta, to Finn Machuval. Finn was never refused in anyone's house, and he shall not be refused by us. I then returned to Finn. You have been long away, dear Kalta, said Finn, for from the day I took the weapons of a warrior in my hand, I have not had a more difficult night. And Finn recites these lines. Swift Kalta, help us. Find a fire and shelter on this mountain side. And Kalta replies, Wonderful shelter have I found, a fairer portal never seen, a woman in this well-stocked house, sweeter than harps, her bright smooth speech. Welcomed we were with wine and mead, we stayed there till the year was full. And Finn says, Wherever I traveled, north or south, the like of today I have never found. And 
The way I like to imagine this, the way I tried to put it into a story once, it's almost as if you see a round wooden door in a hill, or in a mound in this case, and you see that it's open, and you can tell from inside the color of flickering firelight, and you can tell the sound of a crowd, almost of a longhouse, of a Norse uh, longhouse, and you can imagine the color that the flickering of the fire would give in an enclosed space, and since it's a magical space, I guess it doesn't need a, a chimney. So all you, all you have is the sort of golden, orange, reddish firelight, and the sound of a crowd, and the sound of uh, utensils and cups and plates on tables, and in this case, the sound of people making music and of people singing, and um, just a strange place to be, a strange place to imagine. I don't know if I should devote an entire episode to what the sheath was or might have been or has been imagined ever since, even by somebody like Yeats, but it seems uh, maybe that's a possibility before I get done with the Celtic myths. And let me see here. Yeah, and the rest of the tale is more about uh, a war that this sheath makes on uh, another one. And I don't think that's really necessary to read here. It was just the description of what these the interior of these mounds looks like. Let's see what we have here. Oh yeah, so from what I just mentioned about the sheath, that they are imagined to be the places where the former inhabitants of Ireland flee to, uh, near the end of the Tales of the Elders of Ireland, uh, it says that uh, through the decree of Holy Patrick, he will eventually be the chief sage of Ireland. He's referring to uh, one of the other characters in the book. And aside from him, Patrick will put the Tuatha de Danann, except for this minstrel, into the steep slopes of hills and rocks, though you may occasionally see in an apparition one of the doomed visiting earth. That has a Christian overlay, but it's the same idea of the story. Um, let's see what the footnote says at the end of the book. There is considerable speculation in Irish sagas that deal with the other world about the manner in which the appearance of other world characters is to be interpreted. Medieval Irish literati frequently draw attention to their malign and diabolical aspects at the same time as they show them as being quite compatible with Christian belief. So they want it both ways. Um, and I'll read one more story here. This is the last story, basically, in the book uh, before a, a sort of epilogue. And, and then I will leave it here with the Agalev Shenarach. And it's a, uh, another question posed to Kalta. Well, my dear Kalta, do you know the other persecution that I suffer in this land? What would that be, dear friend, asked Kalta. Three wolf bitches come from Uam Hruachen, the cave of Hruachu, every year and destroy whatever rams and sheep we have. 
Before we can do anything, they retreat back to the cave of Krahu. He would be a welcome friend who would drive them away from us. And you can imagine people just, uh, uh, I suppose like me, going to my neighbor's house uh, and lightly suggesting, um, what do you think about this leak under the sink? Uh, where do you go to uh, get a window screen like that? Um, what we're really asking is, will you help me do this? And um, this happens to Kalta all the time. If you see him, uh, if you have a problem, you will uh, get him to do what you would like, because he's a good guy. And he says, well, dear Kath, said Kalta, do you know who these three wolves are that make raids on Baranach? I do indeed, said Kaskarach, the three daughters of Artek, the last of an oppressive company from the cave of Krahu. It is easier for them to raid as wolves than as people. Would they trust anyone to approach them, asked Kalta. There is but one group they would trust, said Cass. And what group is that, asked Kalta. If they saw men of this world with harps and dulcimers, they would trust them, said Cass. They will trust Cass Korach in that case, said Kalta. What place do they usually come to, he asked. They come to the Cairn of Brie here, said Bernach. How would it be if I went there tomorrow, asked Cass, and bring my dulcimer along with me to the top of the cairn? I should have introduced Cass. He is uh, sort of the musician and poet uh, who is met early in the book and is constantly referred to all throughout. And here he is offering to um, to deal with these women who have become wolves. And it says, Cass set off early in the morning and went to the top of the cairn. He kept playing his dulcimer there until the setting of the clouds of late afternoon. And as he was playing, he saw the three wolves approach him and lie down nearby to listen to the music, but he was unable to attack them. At the end of the day, they went from him north to the cave of Kas Korak and returned to Kelta and told him his tale. Go back there in the morning, said Kelta, and tell them that it would be better for them to listen in human form to music and minstrelsy rather than in the shapes of wolves. So Kaskarak does that. He went back the next morning to the same cairn and placed his men about it. The wolves came up to the cairn and lay in their wolf shapes to listen to the music. And Cass said to them, If you really are human, it would be better for you to listen to the music in human shape rather than as wolves. And they listened to him and took off the dark, long cloaks they had been wearing, for they enjoyed the beguiling music of the sheath. And this just also expresses the respect that music is given, that, uh, a, uh, that a dulcimer um, is not just something that you pick up. It is an otherworldly thing. And going to the... Uh, the fall festivals in, uh, in rural Pennsylvania and seeing the guy playing the dulcimer. There's always one guy who's got a little hut set up playing the dulcimer and I will look with more respect on him. Um, I shouldn't say that. I already do look with respect on him. It's, a, it's an amazing instrument to watch him play, but I will look with him, look upon him with even more respect 
come September when I get to see someone playing the dulcimer again. Uh, he is playing the music of the sheath, indeed. And, uh, and this is what Cass is able to do. Uh, the women who are wolves have taken off their wolf cloaks because they enjoyed the beguiling music of the sheath. And as they lay there, side by side and elbow by elbow, Kailta eyed them. He put his forefinger of valor in the loop of the spear, and his spear, in its poisonous course, went through the nipple of the breast of the woman furthest away, having already gone through the other two women, so that all three were strung together on that spear. And Kailta recited these lines. Kailta, with his venom, killed the wondrous three. They perished, great the sadness, from a single cast. And Kaskorach went over to them and cut off their heads. Uh, these stories, written in the 12th century, after Christianity has been settled and taken over the land, um, the Celtic myth and the uh, stories of the past and the importance given to beheading and to human heads, however, still persists, uh, as happened in one of the earlier stories that I read just now. Uh, severed heads are of immense importance to, uh, to uh, British and Irish as well as continental Celtic peoples. So Cas Korak went over to them and cut off their heads. And thus the valley running north from the Cairn of Bree Crew is even now called the Valley of the Wolf Shapes. Good was your prowess today, Kalta, says Kaskorak. That was not the work of an old man, and it was a fine thing for your minstrel to be at hand. I did no more than the minstrel, said Kalta, you who enticed them out of their wolf shapes and into human form. And it says, they returned to the fort of Bernach, carrying the heads of the three women as tokens of victory and triumph, and they stayed there for another three nights. And I hope that you have enjoyed, I don't know if I did this as well as I thought that I could, just this peek into perhaps 140, 150 stories spread over 223 pages. Strange stories, wonderful, uh, a wonderful way of organizing them. All the different layers and strands in here I hope I've been able to touch on. And I hope it prompts at least one or two of you out there to go and buy the book, and I will put it in the a link to it in the post description as always. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.